Between the east and west trading outposts lies a barren wasteland of sand and stone, where no animals roam and no plant life grows. It's a solid, flat plain without dunes, pitfalls, or other such obstacles. Despite the terrain being easy to traverse, and although it only takes three days to walk, most avoid it, opting instead for the two-week trek around the wasteland. Indeed, most choose to scale the mountain with its rugged landscape, sharp bramble, and fierce nighttime predators. Why? Because of the laughter. As soon as the border out of the wasteland disappears on the horizon, you'll begin to hear distant, incessant laughter coming from an unseen presence. The laughter will follow you, growing nearer and louder with every step. The sound will disorient you. And should you have a beast of burden as a travel companion, it will flee in fear. Sooner or later, you'll come across the source of the laughter. A massive rock. More of a boulder, really. It will look as old as the world itself, with striations marking the ages like the rings of a tree. It won't seem capable of the laughter it emits, lacking a mouth and having no holes for the wind to pass through to produce the sound. Impossible or not, the rock will laugh and laugh and laugh. Beneath the boulder are bones, half eaten by the sand. If that isn't enough to make you quiver in fear, then consider this. There's a single trail behind the rock stretching back for miles, as though it was slowly dragged along the sandy floor. But the rock is too heavy to be pushed, and the only footprints are your own. They'll remain visible until your bones join the pile at the foot of the rock and the wind sweeps them away. And through it all, the rock will continue to laugh. You're sleepless in another dimension. A dimension of horror, cursed to be frightened and disturbed. A journey into a terrifying land whose boundaries are inky darkness. Your next stop, the No Sleep Zone. Now open the door. And brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. light and shadow. I'm David Cummings, and this is the No Sleep Zone. Getting stoned in the desert 
There's a good way to do it, and then there's the worst way, as we learned from author Manon Lysette, from the tale which was this episode's cold open, The Laughing Rock, performed by Atticus Jackson. Our time in the no-sleep zone is in its twilight. We hope you've enjoyed our horror set in the 1960s. We have a long journey ahead as we make our way into the 1970s. A decade of disco, bell-bottoms, corduroy pillows, and... uh, What? You've never heard of corduroy pillows? Oh, they made a lot of headlines. Strange. Anyway, it was a time known as the Me Decade. So get a hold of yourself. But in order for us and our sleepless listeners to be fully braced for the 70s, we're going to be presenting a Sleepless Decompositions episode next week. Volume 11 will feature a colorful story we think will be chilling and disturbing. So before we get back to school, it's Sleepless Decompositions on Labor Day weekend, and Season 18 enters the 70s on September 11th. Ah, the terrors we have in store for you. Now... That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop awaits as the horror begins. In our first tale, we meet two friends taking the train. Riding the rails isn't usually something to find disturbing and disorienting. But as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Stephanie Schism... The pair soon realize that this train ride is an ordeal when they realize they have no idea how they got on the train. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas, Matthew Bradford, Penny Scott Andrews, Jake Benson, Danielle McRae, Elana Charnel, and Lindsay Russo. So make sure you have your tickets, especially if you're going all the way to Stop 115. smelled the coal smoke before I opened my eyes. For a moment, I was eight again, in the shop where my grandfather repaired motors. I used to sit by his old stove and watch him work. Liz, what's the piston firing order of a small block Chevrolet? He'd ask. One, eight, four, three, six, five, seven, two. I'd dutifully report back. He'd laugh and toss me one of the snack-sized Hershey bars he kept in his toolbox as a reward. But the lurching and pitching, where was I? Opening my eyes took more effort than it should have. My head felt leadened, leaning against something cool and smooth. Finally, I cracked my eyelids. Scenery whizzed by outside. Lush green mountains, a clear blue sky. Where was I? I couldn't think. I struggled to raise my head, but it immediately fell back against my seat. Was I on a train? (laughs) I want my mama. (laughs) I managed to raise my head to look at the seat across from me. A girl of about four lay on it, sucking her thumb. She seemed as lethargic as I felt. She also looked familiar, but I couldn't think. My head throbbed and I felt queasy. Someone moved swiftly down the aisle. A lady in a bright blue uniform... She knelt beside the girl. It's okay, sweetie. You'll see your mama soon. 
I coughed to get her attention. She whipped her head around, and I cried out. Her eyes were black as coal. I blinked, and it was gone. She looked at me with concern in her sky-blue eyes. Are you okay? My head. Oh, it's probably the smoke from the train. She walked away. Someone groaned to my right. A dark-haired guy about my age slumped forward. He turned and squinted at me. Jake. I am Jake. What? I don't know. He closed his eyes. I remembered him. Somehow. A number seven on a black jersey. I pictured him at a locker, helping me open mine. And I knew without being able to see it that the baseball cap he wore backwards had a Red Sox symbol on the front. Looking beyond him, out his window, I tried to recall where I'd been just before the train. Jake struggled to his feet. I'm gonna be sick. He made it halfway down the aisle before the lady in blue stopped him. Please return to your seat. Restroom, I'm sick. It will pass. She tried to pull him back, but he shook her hand off and lurched down the aisle. At the end, he disappeared through a doorway to his left. The lady in blue looked anxious. She glanced at the other passengers, but no one else seemed strong enough to stand up. Lips pursed, she waited for him. Finally, the door opened and he staggered out, pale and red-eyed. He looked annoyed to see the lady in blue waiting. He turned as if to go through the door to another car, and she freaked out. Stop! You can't go in there! She almost shoved him down in her attempts to get between him and the door. He lifted his eyebrows and held up his hands in surrender. Then he headed back down the aisle. Instead of taking his previous seat, he fell into the seat next to me. Please, return to your seat. Young man... Where are we? Where are we going? She strode to the first seat of the car, where a man in the same type of blue uniform sat. He turned to look at us, and they whispered behind their hands. What's going on? I can't remember it. My head hurts. Mine too. Do you think we were trucked? He looked at me, then at the little girl in the seat in front of us. But why? The last thing I remember is Mr. Greeley yelling at me. He yelled at you for sleeping in homeroom. That's right. You're Liz. I have a bad feeling. We need to get off this train. The two employees still watched us. These kids, they're from our school. And the younger ones, I think they're from the daycare next to our homeroom class. I looked at the girl, surprised. Mrs. Campbell's daughter, Allie. Approaching stop 105. All passengers remain seated unless a service member directs you otherwise. Only people with tickets for stop 105 will be allowed to disembark there. Do you have a ticket? Before I could look, the two attendants in our car moved quickly down the aisle, closing the blinds over the windows. Jake tried to stop the man from closing ours. Leave ours open, please. The man closed it anyway. Jake reached for it, and the man grasped his wrist. Don't touch that. For a moment, his eyes flashed black. There are things on this journey you do not want to see. Stop 105 holds many of these things. In fact, you do not wish to see any of the stops until we get to stop 110. Enjoy your ride. We watched him walk away. Did you see that? His eyes? Yes, and hers were the same earlier. I thought I imagined it. The train lurched to a stop. 
No one from our car is disembarking at this stop. Perhaps you should close your eyes and nap. It will help time pass. She took a blanket from the overhead compartment and tucked it around me. Jake refused the one she offered him. Rest your eyes, dear. I'll wake you when we reach your stop. A nap. I still felt so groggy and my head wouldn't stop pounding. Maybe if I closed my eyes for just a minute. Jake nudged me with his knee. Stay awake. We can't go to sleep. I opened my eyes and noticed Allie was asleep, snoring softly. All over the car, passengers slept. Some faces I knew. Others were still hazy. Liz, do you hear that? I did. It sounded like wolves howling, or... Moving quicker than I was capable of at the moment, Jake reached across me and opened the shade. What had been sunny and lush only moments ago was now dark and barren. People lurched into the darkness. Then, yellow lights appeared. It took me a second to realize they were eyes. Something jumped at our window, and I screamed. I saw a flash of scraggly black fur and yellow eyes as it slammed against the glass. Then the man in blue was there, yanking on the shade. I told you not to touch that. What the hell was that? Where are we? Where are you taking us? To a nicer place than this, if you will listen to the rules. He stood right beside us until the train chugged in motion again. Along with the howls, I imagined I heard screaming. Jake took my hand. His fingers felt icy around mine, and I looked down. His fingers were pale, the nail beds cherry red. So were mine. So were Allie's. We have to get off this train. His reddened eyes and lips stood out against his pale skin. You don't look so good. I was sleepy. Every time my head dipped, Jake squeezed my fingers. I dozed somewhere between stops 106 and 107, but Jake kept bringing me back. The two employees in blue still stared at us. Finally, the man came toward us. I need to see your tickets, please. He didn't even try to hide the black flash of his eyes. Now. We searched through our pockets and found nothing. What can I tell you, man? If you tell me how I got on this damn train, I might know where my ticket is. The lady in blue approached. They don't belong here. I told you so. Her eyes widened and her mouth gaped. Impossible! The boy's too strong. He cannot stay on here. The woman frowned at us and pulled the man away. We watched them engage in an animated conversation. They're gonna kick me off. I want to go with you. Please, don't leave me. He squeezed my fingers. I won't. I don't know where we're going, but I don't trust them. He glanced out the window. I used to like trains when I was a kid. This one seems kind of slow. I figure we're doing about 80 miles per hour. If we try to jump at this speed, we're probably dead. But have you noticed how much it slows when we're approaching a stop? We have to be close to stop 109 now. Maybe we should take our chances to jump when we get close. But he said we don't need to look outside before we get to 110. What if those creatures are there? What will we do? Jake looked at the couple in blue who were still talking and looking at us. A third, a large man in blue, had joined them. I don't think we have much choice. I think they're about to kick me off. Are you coming with me or staying here? My hand felt cold and clammy in his but I squeezed his fingers. I'm going. Approaching stop 109. The train began to slow. Jake moved fast. 
He jerked me up and half dragged me down the aisle. I glanced behind me and saw the people in blue running toward us, but he caught them off guard. He reached the door in the back of the car and threw it open. Hand in hand, we jumped into nothingness. I awoke to the beeps and whir of machinery. Cold air and the smell of pine disinfectant. Something covered my nose. I fumbled at it, only to feel a warm hand covering mine. I expected the lady in blue, but it was a different face that hovered over mine. My eyes burned when I recognized my mom. Liz, Grant, get the nurse. She's awake. Honey, just be calm. Leave your oxygen mask on. You're okay. You're going to be fine. What happened? The furnace at your school. There was a carbon monoxide leak. It hurt a lot of people before anyone realized what was happening, especially on the bottom level. Your classroom, the daycare. But you're going to be okay. They found you in a doorway with some boy. The two of you made it outside before you collapsed. That's why you're alive. Jake, is he okay? He is, and he's been asking for you. She left the room and I lay there, trying to remember what happened. Trying to piece together some crazy dream about a train and workers with black eyes. My mother wheeled Jake into the room. He smiled at me from under the bill of his Red Sox hat. Hey you, you scared me. Mom smiled and parked his chair by my bedside. I'm going to go grab a sandwich with your father. Let you two talk. What? What happened? I don't remember much. They said there was a carbon monoxide leak and we were the only ones from that classroom who made it out alive. I remember holding your hand, trying to get to a door, but that's about all. I wanted to ask him about the train, but that would sound crazy, right? What's the last thing you remember? I remember Mr. Greeley yelling at you for falling asleep. I couldn't keep my eyes open. I guess the poison was already hitting me. I'm not sure how I even woke up enough to get out. He reached over and squeezed my hand. I looked down. Our hands were pale and the nails were still red. I'd had a crush on him since sixth grade. I couldn't believe Jake Marlowe was here, holding my hand. I laughed. I dreamed about you. I dreamed we were on a train. You saved me from these weird, black-eyed train workers. Jake's already pale face blanched. Train? He pulled his hand from mine and rubbed his hands over his face, accidentally dislodging his hat. He grabbed it before it hit the floor. What the hell? He extracted something from the inside ridge of his cap. He held it up, and we both stared at it. It was a simple yellow ticket with the words STOP 115 printed in black letters. The internet holds many secrets. I'm sure we've all heard rumors about mysterious places buried deep within the ones and zeros of the endless forums and message boards. And as we learn in this tale, 
shared with us by author C.T. Flaska, a young woman is desperately searching for a legendary message thread because she wants to join the others who are said to have found it and have died. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy and Nicole Doolin. So if you're searching for something you think you need, it might be better to get the right kind of help, not the help you'll get from the never-ending thread. The rumors are that you can only find the thread when it's your time. You can miss it if you're not looking at the exact moment you're supposed to. No one accurately knows how to find it or where to start looking. My friends and I would type random combinations of numbers, letters, and symbols into the search bar, hoping we would be the next to discover the thread. Sometimes phrases, random sentences, and any combination thereof, but we never found it. The search for the thread became something of a superstition, the next Bloody Mary or creepypasta. Even the news got in on the hype and ran stories that further scared people. Another person had come across the internet hoax and was found dead. The cause of death was usually cardiac arrest or suffocation, but there was never evidence found on the victim's computer that they were trying to find it at all. No history or logs showed any sign of them tracking down the unknown thread. The victim would only be linked to it when a friend would come forward later and say that he or she was trying to find it. The death would be written off as natural causes. After years of speculation, the existence of the never-ending thread faded into digital history as just another internet hoax. People online will, of course, say they found it. They'll post about how they clicked on a certain image multiple times and the thread unveiled itself, or they were sent a secret message to accept an invite into the thread. Someone once reported that it was just there the moment they logged into Reddit. Most people would exit immediately or turn off the computer after realizing what might be in for them, while others started scrolling. The thing about the ones who claimed they found it and didn't die They write that it changed their lives forever. They were shown things that gave them answers that they did or didn't know they needed. Someone said it gave them the answers to a final exam, and another said it gave them a password to an unclaimed digital wallet holding a collection of Bitcoin. Someone once posted that it let them talk to their deceased little sister one last time. There was no consistent way of finding the thread. If you went looking for it, It would find you. Everyone wants to expand on the lore, no matter how ridiculous their claims are. It's been years since the hype died, but I've decided to give it one last go. If, well, since, it's the last thing I'll do. The past years of my life have been filled with remorse. So many regrets, failures, and bad habits drugs, drinking, and wasted years sit on my shelf of accomplishments. I feel like I've been in a hole, trying to dig myself out, but it gets deeper with every day. My friends and family looking down at me, trying to help, but they only get farther away with each day. 
It's been almost a year since I saw any of them. Since I last talked to anyone, even. They probably wouldn't want to see me anyway. (laughs) They probably hate me. I've decided not to let these thoughts consume me anymore. I'll spend tonight trying to find this all-knowing thread, but at sunrise, I'll be taking everything in my medicine cabinet until I can't swallow anymore. Besides, what's the worst that could happen if I find this thread? It kills me so I don't have to? (laughs) Well, win-win. I spent about three hours on Reddit searching combinations like before. I clicked links that were most likely virus traps. I clicked random shapes displayed throughout different pages, hitting the tab button to locate hidden spots to click. I even simply tried typing never-ending thread in the search box. A couple of hours passed, and I pushed myself away from the computer, slouching in my seat. I stared at my keyboard, listening to my shallow breathing. My eyes welled, and I blinked cutting a few loose tears down my face. My head pounded with empty thoughts, none of it coherent. Scribbles, anger, and distress clouded my mind. I was so hypnotized by the negative self-indulgence that I hadn't even noticed my screen turning black. All that remained was a browser and a single blinking cursor. Before I could grab my mouse, it started typing. 1452518-5144914-7- A number appeared in the browser. I assumed a virus finally ate away at my computer, but then the cursor began moving. The number repeated itself, over and over. The cursor could hardly keep up. 1452518-5144914-7-1452251815-5144914-7-1452251815-5144914-7 As the numbers rolled across my screen and beyond the browser box, a thread began to unravel below. The scroll tab shrunk so small it became non-existent. Reaching for the mouse, I began turning its wheel. Hands shaking, breathing irregular, my tired eyes filled back with tears. I wasn't sad anymore. I wasn't happy. I was terrified. The thread contained a mix of comments by ineligible posters, with no frame of reference as to who or what they were. No avatars, pictures, or profiles. And the comments were... Strange. Most were just random numbers and assorted letters with no context whatsoever. Some were in all caps, screaming hateful words and slurs, while others described acts of violence in vivid detail. I stopped briefly here and there, but scrolled down as fast as I could. I always assumed that was the goal, but maybe there was a message for me hidden in this mess of random comments. Was I supposed to know? Was it going to stop for me, or did I have to find it? Maybe I did have to find the bottom. Placing the mouse in one hand, I used the palm of my other to scroll the wheel faster. It was 1.30 in the morning when I took my first break. I'd spent two and a half hours diving into the thread's abyss. I occasionally wrote down the comments that stood out, in case they meant something later. 
isn't wondering unsafe. Cunning why, leave envelope. This is not there. I love you. Begret, regret, 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 regret. Is easy, give up. Behind you. I scanned the screen intensely, slowing down occasionally but keeping a steady pace. The only sound in my empty apartment was the mouse wheel clicking sporadically with every turn. My PC was dead silent. The fan wasn't even running. I thought about texting my friend Matt to tell him what was happening, but I might lose the thread. I hadn't spoken to him in a while anyway, so it'd be a little strange to get a hold of him this late and convince him I found the never-ending thread. I mean, he told me to call him any time, but I would just disappoint... Wait, an image. I scrolled back up until it reappeared. The picture was of someone sitting in the corner of a dark room. They were at a desk, but I couldn't see what they were doing. She had... uh, Quickly, I turned around in my chair and noticed my closet door was slightly ajar. I looked back at my screen, back at the image. The image of... Me, sitting at my desk. The screen flickered, and the image was gone. A comment was highlighted just as the closet door shut behind me. Don't look. Keep going. My neck ached, urging me to look back at the closet. But just like the thread requested, I continued scrolling. The presence of something behind me was overwhelming. A heavy pressure fell over the room and the temperature dropped. My fingers and face were as cold as ice. The posts in the thread were becoming more clear. Words were standing out, and I was stopping more often, becoming nervous to reach the end. And I had noticed something. Outside the window, to my left. A strange, disheveled figure standing in the brush. Its skin was flaking, like tree bark and its limbs were cracked and splintered. My adrenaline spiked, but I focused on the screen. Stop, dare you. Slashing, cut, mutilate. Slow down. Are you in your apartment? Timid for your own sake. Some of these notes repeated themselves, taking up the entire screen. See you, I 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 see you. I was no longer seeing a canvas of scribbles and mismatched symbols or letters. One comment even had the name of its poster. It stopped me dead in my tracks. D. Take Your Time. Posted by Cassandra Mills. I wrote it down. That was my mother's name. She calls me D for short. It was her birthday a few days ago. I never called her. I'm a horrible daughter. She doesn't deserve a piece of shit like me. The negative thoughts began to brew. Comments started to fade into horrible remarks and accusations. A comment pleaded that I go to the medicine cabinet, giving detailed instructions on how to get to it from my chair, describing my apartment perfectly. Other comments said I didn't deserve that kind of grace, that I needed a worse form of punishment and I should just stab my eyes with a pen or 
Try swallowing thumbtacks and bleach. Slit your skin. Free yourself. Call anytime. No more running. Pathetic. 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 Noises from inside my apartment made me jump. Things fell off the walls and heavy footsteps ran from one room to another. A cold touch wrapped on my shoulder, but I forced myself to look forward. I felt that if I turned around, I would be enveloped by the dark presence behind me and be forced to an unimaginable and terrible end. The bottomless page warped and mangled as I dug deeper. Images of mutilation and suffering flooded the screen at any point. My eyes winced and my brows furrowed. Noises in my apartment seemed to match what horrific displays I saw on the screen. Someone having their throat slit in one picture mimicked the sound of tearing skin and sawing bone from behind me. I ignored the cries for help and scrolled further. I never looked away from the screen, not for a second. I couldn't trust myself not to look at whatever was inching towards my window for the last 40 minutes. The scroll tab was still invisible. The bottom end of the thread was something not to be found, nor was an answer. I knew what would find me in this thread if an answer didn't. I wondered if I could even take my own life before something else got to me. I didn't think I could make it out of my chair. The hot breath of something looming behind me had moisture running down my back. My life was no longer in my hands upon entering this thread. Instead, I gave it away, so it could do what it wanted with me. <sighs> but I didn't want to die. I just wanted the awful thoughts to stop. <sighs> I wanted the negative feelings to go away. I just wanted to be normal again. To be ha happy again. To see the people that I felt like I couldn't show my face to. The people I loved, who probably didn't even know I've been fighting this. Something no one else could see, that no one knew about, and how it made me feel. Alone. I grabbed the notepad and pen, scratching out the comments that made me feel bad, feel alone, and to blame. I read what remained. See you. I see you. I see you. I see you. D. Take your time. Call any time. Are you okay? Slow down. I love you. <laughs> I fell onto my keyboard and cried. I didn't lift my head until the sun rose. The thread had vanished, and the desktop was back to normal. My apartment was quiet, and the sun flooded the room with light distracting all darkness. All I could hear was the fan from the computer softly humming beside me. I lifted myself off the desk and reached for my phone. I dialed my mom and waited. Honey? Dee, is that you? It's almost seven in the morning. Is everything okay? <laughs> no. <laughs> My voice escaped me. My chest convulsed as I held back another wave of sobbing. I never wanted her. I never wanted anyone to know about this. 
to know about the thoughts and tricks my mind plays. How I overwhelm myself with negative accusations. They'll be disappointed, talk about me, and think I'm crazy. They'll think I'm crazy. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I fell back into crying. I couldn't hold the feeling anymore. From the other side of the phone, I heard movement. A soft tapping on the shoulder of my dad. She was waking him up. It's okay, honey. Slow down. Are you in your apartment? The same one off Glen Street? We're on our way, okay? I tried to answer, but couldn't. I held the phone tight and let everything out. I felt silly, feeling embarrassed. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to know that all my thoughts were just... thoughts. I had spent so long relying on my intuition that I hadn't thought about the times that it might have been wrong. I was tired of running. I wanted my family back, my friends, and my life. I let out a breath of frustration, but could only cry. Dee, take your time. I love you. Horror. On the internet. Take it from me, there are some great ways to experience it, like, say, horror fiction podcasts, and some rather awful ways to frighten yourself. And as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Rona Vassilar, one young man thinks he's found a creepy ritual online which is not only horrifying, but incredibly risky. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Ellie Hirschman, Nicole Goodnight, Danielle McRae, and Mike Delgadio. So maybe it's best to just listen to horror stories. It's a lot safer than trying them yourself, especially when you try to play the staircase game. If you've been on the internet at all in the last year, you've almost certainly heard about the staircase game. If you've somehow managed to miss it, your days of blissful ignorance are over. The rules are pretty simple. To play, you must first find a staircase with just 13 steps. Not one more, not one less. Starting at the bottom, you step onto the first step and then back down. Then, you walk up two steps and back down again. Next, you walk up to three steps and back down. You repeat the pattern until you walk all the way up to the thirteenth step and back down again. For the game to work, it has to be done completely alone. If another living soul sees you while you're playing the game, you lose. If you lose, of course, nothing happens. That's how it always goes in games like this. If you win, 
They say that you can see things almost no one else in the world can see. Things that we're not supposed to see. But with your victory comes a warning. If you can see them, they can see you too. This is the story of how my friend Evan won the staircase game. Evan's how I heard about the staircase game in the first place, actually. He'd always been into the weird internet stuff. He'd spend hours scrolling through Reddit, 4chan, YouTube, and whatever else. I've never been real big on internet culture, so I may have never known about it if he hadn't told all of us in the cafeteria after our 11am class one day. So, what? You see ghosts? Is that it? Evan shrugged. Not ghosts necessarily, just things. Nobody knows what they are. Kaylee rolled her eyes. Ugh, lame. If nobody knows what they are, maybe it's because nobody's actually seen them. Because they don't exist, and this is just a stupid urban legend. It's not an urban legend, it's a creepypasta. Kaylee frowned at Sam. What's the difference? It's not a creepypasta, guys. It's real. You should read some of the experiences people have had. There's no way they're making this stuff up. Let's say for a minute that it's real. Because I have a bad habit of playing along with my friend's ridiculous shit even when I shouldn't. Why would you do it anyway? I mean, so you see weird stuff that nobody's supposed to see, and maybe those weird things are dangerous. What does that get you? What's the point? Evan looked at me with great exasperation. The point is that there's a world beyond our own, and you can be a part of it. I shrugged. Yeah, I don't know, man. That sounds like a shit deal to me. I've got enough to deal with in the world as we know it. For a guy who likes Lord of the Rings so much, you'd think you'd have a better sense of adventure. Evan stood and snatched up his lunch tray in disgust. Well, I'm going to do it and prove it's real. He marched off to dispose of his tray and probably go back to our dorm room to play video games before his afternoon classes. Pretty much the moment he was out of sight, the rest of us forgot about the game and moved on to juicier topics. Like the professor who totally lost his shit during a Philosophy 101 lecture that morning. It wasn't until a few days later, right around 3am, when the door to my room banged open that the game came up again. I did it! I finally did it! His voice was ten times louder than it should have been. I burrowed deeper into my covers. I have a chemistry exam tomorrow. Fuck chemistry! Chemistry doesn't know shit! You know who knows shit? I know shit. I was definitely not awake enough for that level of incoherence. But since Evan wouldn't stop blabbering, I heaved myself out of bed and chugged what remained a flat, lukewarm Mountain Dew I'd left on my bedside table. Whatever you did, it better have been nothing short of murder, or I'm gonna kill you for waking me up. Dude, the staircase game, that's what I did. I won the staircase game! It took my brain a few seconds to connect the dots to our conversation a few days prior. Are you serious right now? He completely misread my tone. Yes! I made it through all 13 steps. I've been trying for like 
almost a week, but I kept getting interrupted or, or forgetting what number I was on halfway through, but I finally did it, and- You woke me up at three in the goddamn morning. Okay, well, it's a little your fault for being asleep at three in the morning, you fucking loser. I closed my eyes and counted to ten, because if I didn't, I knew I would launch myself at Evan and throttle him. Once I had myself under control, I opened my eyes and sighed. Okay, so you won the game. What do you see? Evan hesitated for a moment. Well, nothing yet, but I mean I just won. I probably have to give it a few hours or something. I think I was staring at him like he'd grown a second head. Or maybe just like he was the biggest moron on campus, which is definitely how I felt in that moment. Seriously? Hey, maybe the things are asleep. I mean, it's three in the morning. Any normal person would be asleep right now. Why not them? I closed my eyes again as that homicidal urge rushed up. I'm going to bed. If you wake me up again, you won't have to worry about the unseen things because you'll be joining them. Jeez, how many times do I have to tell you guys that they're not ghosts? That was the end of our conversation that night. The next day, I passed my chem exam, C's kept degrees, and met up with Evan at the cafeteria during lunch to find out if he'd seen anything. Nah, nothing yet. But hang on, I'm sure something will happen. But I could tell he didn't really believe it. He had that glum look about him like someone had just run over his cat. If he had a cat, that is. I figured that I'd ask him a few more times, just to be a dick, and then I'd leave it off and we'd eventually forget the whole business had ever happened. But then, later that afternoon, Evan called me and started practically shrieking in my ear. It happened. I'm finally seeing something. What? Now come on, you're bullshitting me. No, I'm serious, dude. I'm at the library. You know the library? I rolled my eyes. Yes, Evan, I know the library. Because unlike you, I have actually been there at least once. Right, oh, okay, so get this. There's a shadow on the side of the building. A shadow? Yes, but like, on the side of the building where the sun is shining. So it shouldn't be there, right? Do you honestly think that you're seeing an impossible shadow? That's your proof that this game worked? Well, how would you explain it, assface? Gee, I don't know. I would probably assume that it's just a normal shadow that you're projecting all your hopes and dreams onto. <laughs> Fuck you, asshole. I'm gonna sick my new shadow friends on you. Then he hung up. For the remainder of the week, Eben carried on much the same. Everywhere he went, he saw weird shadows or a strange patch of grass or tree branches blowing in the wrong direction. He would relay these to me colorfully at any given opportunity. I found it annoying. Our other friends thought it was sort of funny, interesting even. Sam, in particular, asked a lot of questions about the strange things Evan was seeing. Eventually, they gave Evan the idea of writing down his experiences and not just in online forums. You know, you should keep, like, a nature journal. You can keep notes about the different things you see and their characteristics and stuff. Maybe even publish it as a book one day. That really got Evan's attention, 
The very next day, he picked up a composition notebook and started scribbling in it all hours of the day and night. One night, I asked to see what was in Evan's notebook. By that point, it was starting to look tattered because he carried it everywhere, and it was over halfway full. No way. He clutched the notebook to his chest, dramatically. You made fun of me, so now you don't get to see all the cool shit I'm seeing. I don't know why that irritated me so much. To tell the truth, the whole thing was annoying me. His obsession with the story, his absolutely bullshit assertions that he was seeing things that weren't there. The thing that probably annoyed me the most, though, was how much attention Sam was giving him. I would have done anything to get Sam to be half as interested in me. Maybe that's why I did what I did next. Even so, it makes for a piss-poor excuse. It happened like this. One day during our 11am class, Evan kept glancing across the room, a furrow between his eyebrows. I ignored him, mostly because I absolutely could not fail econ if I expected to be a business major. But I couldn't help but notice, he stayed distracted all throughout class. Once we were out the door, Evan whispered to me. Did he see her? There was that spike of annoyance again. See who? There was a new girl in class today, but I couldn't tell if she was actually a girl or... you know. Our econ class was pretty small, only about 15 people, so a new person would definitely be noticed. And I hadn't seen anyone. Nope, must be one of your unseen things again. Evan frowned. You think? But she looked so normal. Kind of cute, even. Why don't you go talk to her? Evan gave me an incredulous look. Talk to her? Are you nuts? I shrugged. Why not? What's the big deal? If she's one of those things, I could get hurt. They can be dangerous. Says who? The people online who also coincidentally live long enough to write and post their stories? It can't be that dangerous then, can it? Besides, imagine the kind of things you can learn for your book. Evan still looked a little uncertain, but I could see he was warming up to the idea. Yeah, yeah, maybe you're right. If you asked me then what I thought would happen, I'd have said that I thought she was a normal person that I simply hadn't noticed in class that day. And that Evan would go up to her and absolutely humiliate himself by asking if she was some kind of supernatural freak. Then, maybe he'd finally shut the fuck up about the stupid game. Evan strode off with purpose in the direction of the library, I assumed in pursuit of the mystery girl. As for me, I skipped lunch, suddenly feeling out of sorts, and went back to our dorm to chill and watch some TV. I didn't see Evan until that night, much later than he usually stopped back at the dorm. When he came in, he didn't look so good. Troubled and a little pale. You okay, man? He sat down heavily on his bed and ran his hand through his hair. I talked to her. Then he was quiet for a minute. And? I don't know what happened exactly. I stopped her on the way to the library and said I was in class with her told her my name, and she looked at me and, and I can't really remember her face. What do you mean? 
I mean, she must have had one, right? But when I try to remember it now, it's all blurred in my mind. Like she's a drawing that got smudged. I thought that over for a second. You said she was pretty when you saw her in class. Yeah, I guess I did. But now... He shrugged. So what did she say when you talked to her? He shook his head. I don't know. I laughed a little, trying to lighten the mood. <laughs> don't you know anything? Evan didn't laugh. When she talked, it sounded like she was speaking underwater. I couldn't make heads or tails of what she was saying. Like, maybe it wasn't even English. I don't know. And then she reached out and touched my arm. And then she walked away. That's it? That's it. Huh. That's... weird. I hated to admit it, but this story unsettled me in a way I didn't like. Maybe because Evan wasn't laughing and joking about it. I'd rarely ever seen him so serious. I knew without a doubt that he was telling the truth, which meant one of two things. Either he was going nuts, or there was a serious weirdo walking around campus. I didn't like the prospect of either. Obviously, it didn't have anything to do with the staircase game, because the game was all bullshit. Just a stupid thing made up by someone with way too much spare time on their hands. I didn't say that to Evan, though, mostly because I didn't get the chance. He told me pretty abruptly that he was going to bed, and that was that for the rest of the night. I didn't see Evan again until the next afternoon, and when I did, he looked worse. He had deep bags under his eyes, like he hadn't slept well, and his face looked sort of waxy. He was sweating something fierce, too. Hey, man, you don't look so good. We were at the cafeteria, waiting for Sam and Kaylee to meet us for supper. He'd grabbed a slice of pizza, but was just poking at it without making real moves to eat. I don't feel so good. I frowned and inched away from him a little. Do you think you caught the flu? I heard it's going around. He shook his head. Absently, he scratched at his arm. I don't think so. It doesn't feel like the flu. Well, what does it feel like? A deep shudder went through him. Awful. Then he went quiet. When Sam and Kaylee got there, they realized immediately that something was up. Both of them tried to talk to Evan to see what was wrong, but he just got up, dumped his food, and left the cafeteria like someone was chasing him. What's with him? Something about a girl he talked to yesterday. I think maybe he's just coming down with something. Is this about that game? I wasn't sure what to say to that. Eventually, I settled on... He certainly seems to think so. You should talk to him. I felt a stab of frustration at that. I tried. I spoke a little sharper than I'd intended. Sam held up their hands in surrender. Okay, jeez, I'm sorry. Supper was awkward after that, which put me in a sour mood. Now Sam thought I was mad at them and or a shitty friend. Great. Just great. I planned to give Evan a piece of my mind when I got back to the dorm, or at least force him to go see the campus nurse and get checked for the flu but he was already in bed by the time I got home. Over the next few days, Evan got worse and worse. His eyes turned bloodshot. 
His hair started falling out in big chunks on his pillow. His breathing got raspy and labored. He looked like he was losing weight at an alarming pace. Perhaps the most concerning, though, was the rash that had appeared on his arm and was quickly spreading. It was an angry red and must have itched something terrible because he wouldn't stop scratching it. When he did, pus and blood burst over his fingers and ran down his arm. The smell was indescribable. Evan, you seriously need to go to the hospital. I am not joking. We were on day four of his illness and I was starting to get scared. He looked like he was going to keel over where he stood. They can't help me. It's her. She did this to me. Look, the rash. It started where she touched me. I felt a wild spike of guilt and fear hit my gut like lightning. I did this to him, came the voice in my head. Even though he didn't say it, I was sure Evan was thinking it. I was the one who told him to talk to her. A surge of anger pushed the guilt away. God damn it, Evan, for the last fucking time, the staircase game isn't real. You are ignoring a serious medical issue because you've become obsessed with some urban legend creepypasta bullshit, and I'm sick of it. If you don't come with me to the hospital now, so help me God, I am going to call an ambulance. See if I don't. Evan barely reacted to my yelling, which at that point was quite loud. He waited until I was done and then said, Prove it. What? Prove it's not real. You go play the staircase game. If you play it and you don't see anything, then we'll both know I'm just crazy. And I'll let you take me to the hospital. His eyes were fixed on me with a manic bloodshot stare. I felt a shiver go through me. That's what it'll take? He nodded. I swore under my breath. We don't have time for this, Evan. I'm not going to go prowling around campus at 2 in the morning trying to find a 13-step staircase. You don't have to. Go to the church. It's got exactly 13 steps leading up to the front door. Since we went to a Catholic school, we had our own church near the center of campus, just next to the main administration building. That late on a Tuesday night, or technically a Wednesday morning, I guess, it was sure to be deserted. Fine. I'm going now. Put on your shoes and a coat, because we're leaving the second I get back. I felt Evan's eyes on me as I walked out the door and across campus, mumbling curses at him the whole time. I couldn't believe he was letting a stupid game get the better of him. I couldn't believe he was blaming me for getting him sick, never mind the fact that he'd never actually said that. A few minutes later, I was standing at the foot of the church steps, not another soul in sight. It struck me then how eerie everything was. My surroundings were lit only by the glow of the moon. The air was still and so was everything around me. There wasn't a sound to be heard, not even the rustling of a squirrel running through the grass. Despite knowing there were students all over campus still awake and drinking, watching movies, poring over their textbooks, I felt like I was completely and utterly alone in the world. I considered just walking back and telling Evan I'd done it. How would he know anyway? Besides, I wanted to get him to the hospital sooner rather than later. 
But no, as annoying as he'd been in the last few weeks, Evan was a good friend. I told him I'd do this for him, so I would, and I'd prove to him how ridiculous he was being. I started the game. First one step, then two, three, four, five. All the way up to thirteen. It didn't take as long as I thought it would, and I was lucky enough to get it right on the first try. Nobody passed by to see me and interrupt the game. I started it alone, I finished it alone, and when I was done, I bolted back to my dorm alone. Evan was still sitting on the floor where I'd left him, curled in on himself, his eyes fixed on the door. His right hand was covered in blood and pus, scratching away at an arm that was starting to look like it had been through a meat grinder. Well, I did it, and nothing happened. I saw the first hints of relief in Evan's eyes, coupled with plenty of disbelief. It took a few hours for me to start seeing things. Maybe- Evan. I knelt down next to him. I put a hand on his non-injured arm, wincing at the clamminess to his skin. It's not real. I didn't see anything because there's nothing to see. When you played the game, didn't you say you felt it right away? That something was different? He hadn't said that, but he still nodded as he looked at me, the relief growing and his shoulders sagging as the tension ran out of them. Whatever's going on, it has nothing to do with the game. You're just sick, and that's making you think things that aren't true. Now can we please go to the doctor and get you checked out? <sighs> yeah, I... Yeah, Jesus, this is so... It, it just felt so real. My heart ached for my friend, sitting there in pain, unable to trust his own senses. I know it did. I can't believe I... I'm sorry. <laughs> he laughed a little. It was low and rough, like he had a bad case of strep throat, but it sounded so good. It was the first time he'd laughed since he'd seen that girl. I've been a real pain in the ass, huh? I smiled at him. Yeah, but you're my pain in the ass. Now let's go. True to his word, he let me take him to the hospital. I expected the doctors to take one look at him and admit him, or at least show a little bit of concern over what I believed was a life or death illness. Instead, they ran a few blood tests, frowned at some computer screens, and then one of them gave the verdict. You've got a mild infection. I'll prescribe some antibiotics to clear it up. But you need to make sure you take the whole two-week course. Otherwise, it could come back worse than before. A mild infection? Look at him! Does that look mild to you? It doesn't feel mild. The doctor sighed and spoke as if he'd had to explain the same thing to a hundred idiots before us. Maybe he had. I'm sure it doesn't feel mild. Any infection is bound to feel nasty, but I promise it's nothing serious. You'll feel rotten for a few more days, partly because of the antibiotics, but in two weeks you'll be right as rain. Scout's honor. I wasn't convinced, but stayed quiet as the doctor bandaged his arm and wrote out the prescription. I had to admit that once we got back to the dorm room, Evan was already looking much better. I hadn't realized how much he'd been freaking out about the game. He took the first round of antibiotics and crawled into bed. It must have been all the stress. 
I'm feeling so much better now. I think I just need to sleep for a bit, and then, who knows, maybe I'll be feeling up for class tomorrow. Nah, you should milk the bed rest for all that it's worth. Besides, what's there to look forward to about a miserable econ lecture? <laughs> You're right. Gotta save up my strength so we can hit the bars this weekend. Yeah, if you can find a fake ID that's worth half a fuck this time. He laughed. <laughs> a few minutes later, he was snoring. When I woke up the next morning, he was huddled in the corner of the room, already several hours dead. His eyes were clouded over. His mouth was hanging open in a scream. The bandage on his arm had been torn off, and he'd scratched clear down to the bone. In his arms, he clutched that notebook he'd taken to carrying around. I don't remember exactly what happened next. My memory from that day is a little blurry. But someone must have called the cops because I remember them bursting into our dorm room to find me just sitting there, staring at Evan's body. There was an investigation. There always is when things like that happen. I was a person of interest for a while. The police interviewed me and everything. I probably should have gotten a lawyer, but I didn't. I didn't think I deserved one. The moment they sat me down, I blabbed the whole messy story about the staircase game and how it had killed Evan. How I had killed Evan. The cops didn't believe that, but they clearly thought that maybe there was something wrong with me. I probably would have ended up charged with murder if the autopsy hadn't shown that Evan had died of a heart attack. Sounds unbelievable. A 19-year-old kid has a heart attack and drops dead? But it turned out that heart issues ran in Evan's family, and supposedly his great-grandfather died of a heart attack in his early 30s. The coroner determined that the infection, mild though it had been, could actually have triggered it. Just one of those freak things, he said. So that was the end of anyone's suspicions that I might have been involved. The cops suggested I talk to someone, a therapist I guess, about my misplaced sense of guilt. That was the end of that. The story about the staircase game never got out, and Evan's death didn't go further than the local newspapers. I asked for Evan's notebook back so maybe I could publish what he'd found on the internet and try to get some answers, but the police told me to drop it. I never did find out what happened to that notebook. Things haven't been so good since then. It's only been a few months since his death, but no matter how much time goes by, I still feel responsible. I've stopped hanging out with Sam and Kaylee. It's not that I don't want to see them, but I'm afraid if they look at me too closely, they'll see what I've done. Like it's written all over my face or something. They tried reaching out for a while, but everyone gives up eventually. At least, that's been my experience. I'm just trying to take things day to day. I think about looking up the staircase game stories on the internet sometimes, just to see if I could get answers about any of this madness. I haven't done it though, because what good would answers be now after Evan's already died? The best thing I can do is just do my best to forget the whole thing. That's what I thought until this morning. When walking to class, I happened to pass by the library and saw a shadow on the sunny side of the building, exactly where it shouldn't be.
It's heartbreaking to watch your parents get older. Made even tougher when you realize their mental faculties are diminishing rapidly. And as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Jenna Kimanawa, one man is learning how to take care of his mother in her declining years, but the cause of the decline appears to be less mental and far more insidious. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Mary Murphy, and Mick Wingert. So if you find yourself looking after your parents, make sure you visit often. You'll discover what to do when you hear them say, Welcome home. The decline had been steady, as far back as we could recall. Little things here and there, keys in the fridge, getting lost on the way home, marked the beginning. Over the months, it never alarmed us, until now. It wasn't a decline into dementia anymore. It was a descent into madness. Yesterday, I'd walked in on her pulling the wings off several small birds. She hummed as she worked, methodically and delicately. The doctor had assured and reassured me that there was nothing else wrong with her. After yesterday and today, I just don't know. Today, she cut her finger off. My mom, the most gentle, passive person I've ever known, cut her finger off at the knuckle. I can't remember what I had said after that moment. I walked out to my car in shock. I called my brother. Eight frantic dials all sent to voicemail. I called my father. A long shot at having his phone in the bar. Unsurprisingly, no answer. I tried my brother one more time, leaving a tear-soaked voicemail. I took a deep breath and walked back inside. Mom stood with her back to me, facing out the window over the kitchen sink. A rag was clamped to her finger. You don't need to be so dramatic, love. She turned and smiled, showing me her still intact finger. I sucked the air in around me between my teeth. She tucked an errant curl behind my ear. It's a cut. I'll be fine. I saw the finger, laying on the counter. The crimson tear running along that jagged edge, the splintered bone. I stared at the spot it had been. A large, wet drop of blood was the only remnant. I tried to smile through my fear and confusion. I saw it. I made sure she'd taken her nightly meds. Left a voicemail for Dad, then got in my car to head home. Home. I was so relieved to even imagine it. Wrapped in thoughts of what I would do when I got home, I didn't even realize I was lost until I noticed the houses getting closer and closer together, more run down or abandoned. And there, at the end of the street, was my mother's house. My childhood home. This wasn't her neighborhood. Nothing looked familiar. I'd been to this very house almost every single day for 29 years. But there it was. The same beige siding falling off the right-hand corner in the same spot. The same red shutters and front door to match, with heart-shaped windows instead of a peephole. A surprise to my mother from my dad when we were small. 
I could even see her old dog sitting on the back of the couch in the picture window of the living room. I drove up to the house, my head spinning but silent. I got out and walked to the door, listening to the familiar sound of Glenn Miller, her favorite, drifting from the cracked kitchen window. I still couldn't form a thought. I just opened the door and stepped inside. And there she stood. In the kitchen, facing out the same window she had hummed to earlier today. I didn't say a word. Just watched her. That was my mother. I'd know her anywhere. She stood humming, but it was discordant. Ugly. She must have heard me, because she turned and looked at me. It was her. But... It wasn't. There was just something. I don't know. She smiled, then turned back around. The room seemed darker than usual. The air thicker and more hot. Staying for supper? She continued her grisly hum. My throat was thick. I didn't know what to do. I ran. I just ran back to my car and reversed from the drive as fast as possible speeding down that unfamiliar road, turning and twisting until I found my way home. I ran inside and quietly went to bed. My nerves were shot, and possible explanations ran through my head until I finally fell asleep. The next day, she was fine. It wasn't a particularly good day for her, but she seemed agreeable. I'd asked her about my visit, which she denied ever happened. I eventually chalked it up to a dream I thought was real. The next couple days were fine. No events caused by Mom that would be worth remembering or noting. No bad dreams. The third day, driving home, I saw it again. That road. The house. I drove past, ignoring it. But then the next turn, there it was again. I kept running, but no matter where I went, it was there. It was getting closer every time I turned away. The next street, it was one house further up. And up. I stopped in the middle of the street when it was the first house I saw. I stalked up to the door and threw it open. This time, she wasn't facing the window. She was lying on the floor. A black puddle oozed from beneath her head. A brackish spiderweb that soaked through my shoes. Her eyes were white. And she was humming that song again. I screamed. She screamed. Then kept humming. I begged her to stop. She just kept humming. Dead birds littered the kitchen table. Beaks and feathers strewn across the floor. I don't know why I did it but I ran to my childhood room. I didn't leave. I just ran and locked myself into that sanctuary I once had. I could hear her crawling to the door, screaming again and humming louder, louder. I screamed back and sobbed, begging, please, just stop. Please, stop, please. I don't know when I fell asleep. But I woke up at home, my real home, my house, a nightmare. It was all a nightmare. 
My day went by too soon, my mind wrapped in thoughts of how real that nightmare had felt. I decided to stop by her house on my way home to make sure she was okay. She flitted around the kitchen, a good cognitive day. She seemed so coherent and here that it caught me off guard. Why did you leave last night? My mouth felt dry, coarse like sand. I didn't know what to say. That couldn't have been real. I went into your room to check on you this morning, but you were gone. My eyes burned. I felt sick, and dread sat heavily in my chest. I... Mom, I was at home all night. My throat felt thick with bile and fear. She looked at me coldly, disgusted. Her eyes seemed to look into herself. She wasn't here anymore, really. Do not treat me like I am stupid. You were in your room. You came in the front door and ran straight to your room. Rude of you, really. Couldn't even greet our guest. The sound, the air, the reality seemed to be leached from the room around me. What are you talking about, Mom? I gripped the edge of the counter where we stood, facing each other in tense silence. She laughed and waved her hand. <laughs> it doesn't matter. He'll be back. He always comes. She turned, humming, facing out the window over the sink. She hummed quietly, so quietly I could barely hear. But I knew it was there. That discordant, ugly note. I could feel it. I didn't go back for days. I couldn't. I'd begged my brother to go check on her. He said she was fine, which made me question my sanity. I'd been doing that since the birds. But now I just... I feel like I'm actually losing my fucking mind. I decided to go back. I have to. My mom. I can't leave her. I walked out my front door to head to my car. And there was the house. My heart lurched. It had never been this close before. I couldn't breathe. I felt absolutely certain my grip on reality was slipping away with every step I took towards it. I could see Mom in the living room, her little black dog sitting on her lap, and someone in the kitchen. A black shadow in the window, facing into the living room. Watching her, I lost my courage and stopped, frozen on the front walk. The shadow seemed to pulsate, shrinking and growing somehow. From here I could hear her crying, a faint keening, broken by that hum. I felt myself moving again, robotically, towards the front door. Without pause, I grabbed the handle and turned it, throwing the door open into the inky, black darkness. I could see the lights from the house illuminating the grass on the front lawn, but inside, a void. I felt for the light switch. But no matter how many times I flipped it, the darkness wouldn't recede. I could feel that shadow in the kitchen. It radiated an energy that made the hair on my body stand on end. I refused to look, to acknowledge its presence. I turned my back to the kitchen, to face my mom in her chair. Her skin was taut, waxy and pale. 
Her lips were stretched into a macabre grin, revealing her decaying teeth. The smell of death emanated from her, drawing attention to the little black dog she clutched tightly. It was torn to shreds, its limbs bent in different directions, head hanging by ligaments and tendons. The fur that clung to its tattered torso was slick with blood. She just sat there, petting the corpse in her lap, digging her nails into its body over and over and over with each stroke. Welcome home. That smile stayed fixed, but her eyes seemed to change. They became dark, mirroring the room around her. I could see my own face reflected in those eyes, fear shining in my own. I could also see that shadow lurking in the kitchen behind me. I could see it growing bigger in those black eyes. I could feel it with every intensifying shake of my hands. My mom closed her eyes, quietly humming again, broken only by that ear-shattering wail. My blood ran cold. I could feel my breath catch in my chest. I suffocated with every inch the shadow drew near. I could feel it on my back, closing in on me. It embraced me, enveloping me. My head erupted in a ringing scream, voices that ran and blurred together. I clutched my ears, trying to drown it all out. It swelled and peaked, then stopped. My heartbeat was the only sound left. I slowly opened my eyes, and I was standing in my own living room. The soft glow of lamps, the quiet murmur of the TV. I never felt so unsafe, so unsure of myself. I had been at that house. I had been there. I can still smell the decay, feel the cold touch of that shadow. I sank to the floor, dizzy and out of breath. What was happening to me? I needed fresh air. I struggled to my feet and ran to the front door, wrenching it open. I wasn't facing my own lawn, though. It was the hallway of my mom's home. I slammed the door shut, locking it. I stared at the doorknob for several minutes, unable to face the scene on the other side. I reached for the door, twisting the lock before wrapping my fingers around the doorknob. It felt disturbingly cold. I twisted it, slowly pulling it open. I tried to find relief in the side of my porch, the grass and street lamps I was expecting, but I only felt numb. I silently turned around, walking to my room. I didn't leave my room the next day, or the day after. My phone rang, my doorbell rang, and I just couldn't, I couldn't move, I couldn't feel. I was just existing, too scared to face the world beyond my own safe haven. What I thought made me safe, what felt real. When my phone rang again, I finally answered. It was my brother calling to tell me mom was dead, passed away in her sleep. Could I come to the house? 
My hands tightened on the steering wheel of my car. It felt so surreal to be driving after shutting myself away. Autopilot took me down familiar roads, letting my mind flit through every dark image I could find in the corners of my mind, haunted by the last time I saw her. Frail, but flowing with insurmountable anger, driven by a paranormal insanity. The presence of that shadow pulled at the edges of these memories, staining every thought with an intense, primal fear. I sat in my car, looking at the house. Her home. My home. Pulling myself out took a while, but I found myself walking up the steps to the door with heart-shaped windows. The same broken, bent siding giving me some sense of comfort and familiarity. I knocked twice, holding my breath. I didn't know what would be on the other side. My brother opened the door. My real brother. It felt like a concrete pillar saving me from a wrathful sea. You're here. He smiled so cheerfully it made my own lips stretch to beam back at him. I jumped into his arms, feeling the tangible shape of another person soothing every explosive end of my nerves. The tears I held in began to plunge down my cheeks. I'm so glad you're here. Things have been so terrible here. (laughs) I squeezed his shoulders tightly. I didn't need to feel scared. Someone else was here to save me from whatever plagued me. Of course. I am so sorry that I left you to care for Mom. I just... I couldn't bring myself to come. But why were you outside for so long? I just uh, needed a minute. Uh, A minute? (laughs) You were standing on the front lawn for hours. I tensed. What what are you talking about? I just pulled up a minute ago. I opened my eyes to the room, sunk into darkness. The front door stood open, the sun already drained from the sky. My car was in the drive, running. The driver's side door left ajar. I looked back into the room. My brother, nowhere I could see. I jerked my head back to the door. My brother's car wasn't there. I felt the hair in my body stand on end. Felt that cold, paralyzing sensation on the back of my neck. As I turned around, the door quietly clicked into the frame. Mom's body was thrown on the floor, covered in blood. But I couldn't tell where it came from. Her eyes were rolled back in her head, the whites painted red with broken vessels. Her arm cracked, moving. All I could do was watch, slowly and silently burrowing into panic. My throat was dry. I couldn't feel my lips. I lost control of everything. Her neck snapped next. So loud it rang in my ears. Her limbs, torso, and neck continued to contort in monstrous movements, bringing her closer and closer to me. Cold, skeletal fingers wrapped around my ankles, broken nails piercing the skin beneath my jeans. They raked their way up my body, 
pulling the cadaverous mass closer and higher until it was eye to eye with me. Mother. My mother. It was her. And it wasn't. Her eyes fixed on me. Then, behind me, I knew she was looking at it. That shadow. I could feel it. Every atom of my body vibrating with fear from its venomous hostility. Getting closer to me. My mother returned her soulless eyes back to me. Smiling. It was her. Like I remembered her. She was here. Really here. She was seeing me. And I felt like I was finally seeing her. She tucked a stray curl behind my ear. So gently. Like she always did. She pulled me close. As that malevolent entity embraced us both. Welcome home. In our final tale, we meet an art student who is working hard to develop his craft. He finds a bit of success with it until a chance meeting one day with another student, one whose critique isn't very welcome. But as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Jacob Stephen Moore, the art student offers to create a commissioned portrait for his critic and finds that his art and perception as a whole is disturbingly altered. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis, Jeff Clement, and Kristen DiMercurio. So if you find yourself trying to create a portrait of someone, really get to know them first. It's the best way to create a real likeness. get through it all, but I'm gonna steam on ahead like I'll make it all the way. I'm not even sure if you'll believe what I'm going to tell you, but I've gotta tell somebody, Marshall, or it'll explode out of me, I swear it will. First thing is I've quit art school. Quit it whole hog, broke my brushes, poured the paints in the toilet. Dad's going to throw a fit, but... I can face him. Mom, too. I'm not afraid of them. I'll pay back the tuition money somehow. I'll work evenings to sell blood plasma. Whatever boys our age do for extra money these days. But I'm not going back there, and I am never picking up a paintbrush again. I know how that sounds. My dad, he'd say I never knew what I wanted to do with my life. Mom would tell me that's not the kind of decision you can make in one night, but they're just protecting their investments. There are five or six moments, I think, in every man's life, steering moments. 
where you've got to thrust the paddle down in the water and turn your boat one way or the other. Which way, it doesn't matter, but you've got to turn, or the whole mess will smash on the rocks. And once you've made that left or right choice, the whole river changes. The arc, the trajectory your life will take, is different. And even if you can see the other path, you can't get back on it, no matter how small the jump might look. I've had one of those moments, a steering moment. I hope to God it's my last. Keep that bottle handy, please. I said I'm calm enough to talk, but I don't know how much longer that'll go on. And I don't want to frighten you, but there is one more favor I'd like to ask before I start. That mirror on your door. Would you take it down and put it somewhere? In a closet, maybe, or just facing the wall? There, yes, that's just fine. Sorry, again, for the fuss. I don't know where my head's at. I can't control my thoughts at all. Shaking? You're damn right I'm shaking like a leaf on a tree. I'm terrified, Marshall. I'm more scared than I've ever been in my whole life. But not for my life. Never for my life. I'm not in any danger. Not anymore. But there are other kinds of terror I'm learning. Other kinds, worse kinds, and worse things to fear besides death. Now, pass me that bottle, and I'll tell you everything. This started three days ago, late in the day before the weekend got going. My last class had let out hours ago and I was passing through the university gallery in the Jim Dublin building with a half-finished painting under my arm wrapped in brown paper for the trip home. The building had emptied. The only lights left on were in the main passageway, leaving the rest of the halls dim and quiet. My shoes tapped the tiles, echoing in the near dark, and I was well, thinking about supper. As far as I knew, I was the only student left in the whole south quarter of campus. But when I rounded the corner near the door leading out to the center walk, there was somebody else in the hall. I saw him from the back, standing by the wall between the bathrooms. He was younger than you or me, a freshman, I'd guess, with a red hoodie jacket and a pile of wavy hair balanced on the top of his head and a scruff of hair fixed to the point of his chin. There was a glass display case set in the wall and he was facing it, leaning forward to peer through to the art hung up inside. There's something of mine hanging there now, a project from earlier in the semester. I could tell immediately, somehow, that he was looking at it through the glass. It's not vanity. I, I could feel it, Marshall. Almost a physical sensation, a, a kind of pricking, like the pressure of eyes against your back. 
I could tell he was looking at my painting in that display case as surely as if I'd seen his eyes myself. I was going to walk right past him. I'm not one of those artists who stands next to their own work when it's on display waiting for someone to come up and ask whose it is. <laughs> but I, I did want to know for certain it was my piece he was looking at. That's vanity. And after all, I was only half sure, feeling or no feeling. So as I neared the door, I let my eyes slip sideways without slowing down, not even turning my head. And that's when the other student spoke. It doesn't much look like her, does it? At first, I wasn't certain I'd heard him right. His voice was almost a whisper, and I thought for an instant he was talking to himself. But then he repeated himself, slightly louder, and as I turned my head toward him, I caught a flash of his reflection in the glass. He was looking straight at me. It doesn't look much like her at all. I stopped. It seemed impolite not to. Perhaps I was already put under the spell. I know now that I should have been scared. But at the time, I can remember only a brief disquiet running through me, as though it was me that had been caught staring. He only held my gaze for an instant, and then his eyes refocused and he was looking through the glass once more. I thought I had seen a dull flash of a grin in the glass, but this was only a trick of the light. Before we go any further, I want to tell you about the painting of mine hanging in that glass case, if only because you will never see it for yourself. I already said I'm not going back to the Dublin building, and in fact, I've emailed my fine arts professor asking her to have it destroyed. I did that right before I came to see you. But it's important to me that you understand this, this was just an ordinary painting. Only acrylic on canvas, nothing more. I'm not ashamed to admit that it wasn't really very good at all. The painting was a portrait. Unfinished daydream, I called it. Pretentious name for something I'd based on a scribble on lined paper I'd done during a civics class. The subject was another student, a girl seated one row up from me in that same class. In the painting, she's sitting with her back to you, upright, with her hair tucked down into the hood of her sweatshirt, her chin angled down and her brow in a line. Her head is hardly turned at all, you can barely see her face, only the vague curve of her cheek and the crinkle of one eye. If I'm being honest, the likeness in the painting is not very good, and it wasn't much better in the original sketch, and the expression I called a daydream could easily be cramps if you squinted at it. I don't like drawing people from life. I hate staring at their faces. I get self-conscious. When you stare at somebody, they stare back. And the act of drawing them becomes an act for their pleasure. It becomes a performance. Their expressions change. Have you seen this? Their faces go slack sometimes, like they're watching television. But more often than not, they just become masks. They are performing too, you see. 
You might as well just take a photograph, because the paintings will never show their real likenesses, only their posing, their preening smiles. That's why I draw from candid photographs or from memory, and I paint based on these sketches. The likenesses still aren't any good, but I like to think the essence, the character of the face, remains somehow. Maybe that's vanity, too. But I can tell you that unfinished daydream was different. Even if there was nothing outwardly remarkable about my subject, but the instant she turned her head to the left, I got this strange notion that this was somehow a unique moment. Unique entirely in its un-uniqueness, its un-beauty. Just a slab of life at its most torpid and mundane, and yet I still don't know what compelled me to draw her. It was not let's say, a conscious decision. My pencil moved almost without my ordering it, but I was also utterly absorbed by my task. I sketched in total silence, unaffected by the drone of the lecturer wrapping up in the background, never once taking my eyes off her shoulders and the pale crescent of her face. Her face... Yes, I, I think this was what attracted me. Not the beauty of her features, but the simple fact that I could not see them. There was only that suggestion, that hint of expression. But that hint betrayed nothing, and therefore was less a face than if she had no face at all. The uncertainty of her expression destroyed all identity. She could have been happy, or sad, ugly, or lovely female, or male, or Schrodinger's face, neither living nor dead. I found myself enchanted by that idea. And so I drew, nearly without blinking, in some strange and awesome frenzy. And yet, when I'd finished, I felt nothing. No wave of satisfaction washed over me. The drawing in my hands was only a drawing. I don't know whether the girl knew I was sketching her, but she had sat just so for ten minutes, just long enough for me to complete my work. Then the bell rang and she scuttled out the door. I didn't see her again for nearly the rest of the semester. I'm not certain she was even enrolled in that class at all. I didn't even know her name. Anyway, the glass case, the male student turned away, and for the first time I saw his whole face. A thin, hungry face with no facial hair save for the scruff of goatee on his chin. His expression was serious, almost studying, and as he looked at me across that dark hallway I could feel again a prickling on the backs of my arms. I clutched the canvas I held to my chest involuntarily, but at once eased it back to my side, feeling foolish. Do I know you? I could think of nothing else to say. The other boy went on as though I hadn't spoken. No, it's... it's not a good likeness. But that makes sense. You don't know... How could you hope to capture her if you don't know her? 
I wondered again if he was talking to himself, but dismissed the idea. He had not taken his eyes off me. I glanced toward the door. Light filtered in through the crack between the two doors and through the narrow windows set in each. It would be dark out soon. I, I want you to understand that I, I wasn't afraid of him then. You know, I'm not a big person, but I got in enough fights as a kid that I know how to handle myself. And this other boy, he just wasn't giving off that air. Some guys, you can smell it on them, but this was just a kid, really. Harmless in an obvious kind of way. But I had to reply somehow. I... I don't understand. I gestured with my free arm to the glass behind his shoulder. Do you know who she is? To my surprise, a laugh sprang out of him, a rolling, bleating kind of laugh like a billy goat. Do I know her? Do I know her? <laughs> he wiped his eyes on his sleeve and straightened, taking a few steps toward me. She's not for you to know. I've had a little time to think about it. And I don't care much for the idea of you just staring at her for that long. But I suppose that damage is done already. And to be fair, I've wanted something like this for a long time. A real likeness of her. Something that shows the real her the way I see her. You've helped me realize that. You're... you're welcome. And then, almost in afterthought, I blurted, I take commissions. Even though I've never done anything of the kind, but I had to say something. I still wasn't scared, but I did not like the way this boy talked. He spoke with... I don't know, with a... confidence that set my nerves singing. It wasn't bravado, it was... Mastery. A total sense of imperviousness that somebody who looked and sounded like that just should not have. <laughs> Again, that peculiar laugh rang out. I'm sure you don't. At any rate, you can't do what I need you to do. Not yet. Not quite. I should have run. Marshal, that's all I've been able to think about these last few days. How I should have run in that moment. I should have dropped the canvas to the ground and burst through those double doors like a bat out of hell. But I did nothing. I stood there and did nothing. You just need to see her how I see her. Then he strode quickly across the hall and seized hold of my wrist. And almost immediately I felt myself start slipping away. The next half hour blazed by in a muddled, feverish blur. I recall, faintly, tucking my canvas beneath my arm and pushing through the double doors into the cold. I remember putting the key in the ignition of my car, 
but I don't remember how I got inside it. And I don't recall a second of the drive home. I simply arrived there, stepping through the door of my studio apartment as though I had stepped from one dream into another. What I remember was the heat. It began subtly, just a tickle of warmth in my belly. But over time, it blossomed and spread until there was a jungle of a furnace roaring inside me, throwing off waves of heat like it would explode from within me. You could call it a fever, but this was no sickness. Fevers don't talk to you. They don't whisper. They don't put tongues of flame down your arms and legs and direct them like a hand inside a puppet. And the color of it, Marshall, I could see it like spots dancing in my eyes, clear as anything. Red. Red like there was never red before. You can't mix that kind of red with paint. Not that I would try it. It was like the inside of the sun, the fire inside the fire. I can see it now when I close my eyes tight enough. But I still didn't really understand what had been done to me. I was still in a deep daze, pacified, an animal drugged for transport. I only stirred when I was home and setting up my easel. I took the brown paper off the canvas and set it on the wood frame. Mechanically, I got my paints from their trunk and poured out a lot of white onto a paper plate. I began to come out of it. I put the brush down in the white, staring up at that half-complete portrait on the canvas. I realized what I was about to do, but I, I couldn't stop myself. How can you struggle when there's nothing to struggle against? There was nothing to get my hands around, nothing to brace against. I was not even watching from outside myself. It was like I simply wasn't there at all. In long, straight strokes, I painted the whole canvas white, three coats. I painted right over that lovely, lovely portrait. I'd spent a week creating it, Marshall. A week of sketching and planning and painting, and now it's gone. Hell, maybe it was four coats of white paint. You know, I stopped counting after the first. I was sobbing on the inside. I couldn't really cry. He understand he wouldn't let me because he felt nothing for my past work he didn't care what we were destroying he didn't care at all i doubt he even thought about it that's when i realized what he'd done this is the part i don't think he'll believe that freshman kid he'd they got hold of me somehow. He hollowed me out, pushed me aside to step into my skin, one arm at a time, like putting on a coat. And that red flame I felt I saw behind my eyelids, that was him. The real him. I don't know what that thing in the Dublin Building Hall was. The flesh thing that looked like a boy but wasn't. Maybe it didn't exist. A projection or a disguise. Maybe he grew it like a snail grows its shell slowly over time. A temporary home until something new 
something better came slithering along. Something like me. That's how the three-day horror began. I did not paint at first. The white on the canvas was not dry, and even the creature roosting in my bones knew better than to work on top of that. Instead, from some far-flung corner of my consciousness, an image began forming. A face was taking shape, floating up as though from beneath thick foam. A girl's face, with thin brown hair framing pale, slender features, small dark eyes under thin brows, a trim nose, a small and almost lipless mouth. I don't remember what she wore, my gaze never dropped past her chin, but I could imagine the rumpled hoodie, orange and black, with the Armistice College jack-o'-lantern on the stomach. It, It was her, Marshall. As sure as I'm sitting here, it was and could only be her. And yet how can I be sure at all? All this I beheld for only a fraction of a moment before her face began to change. And had I any feeling left in my body, I would have been stricken to the ground with horror. Yes, the face was changing. At first it was as though she was becoming transparent, layer by layer. I could peer through her skin, see the structure of the delicate muscles that controlled her expressions, thin enough to snap under the protective dermis stretched across the pale skull. I could see the blood pulsing through them, squeezing between the meat and the bone. Then even these muscles were torn loose and only the skull remained. Plates of bone meeting as neatly as bricks in a wall, and then this too vanished, and I beheld the brain superstructure, then the grey jelly quivering within, and beyond that... (sighs) The brain is not the centre of the skull. There are layers within and layers within those layers. I've seen them. The faces within the face... I won't lie to you and say there aren't words to describe it. There are. I've whispered them to myself in blind fugue ever since I escaped that place. What I saw was the gleam of eyes from within a hollow tree, the flicker of a candle in the gaping mouth of a carved pumpkin, the furtive movements of something hidden, something concealed, something that squirmed in flesh like a maggot waiting, growing, feasting. You just have to see her like I see her. But I still didn't understand. Not yet. Not quite. I finally began to paint and it was like no painting I'd ever rendered before. I hardly looked at the canvas at all. That thing, that gleaming, scurrying thing, it burned before my eyes like a flame dancing on the head of a match. I don't remember what marks I made on the canvas, what colors I mixed. Indeed, no earthly colors could have hoped to capture the awesome visage that blazed like the face of hell within me. (laughs) 
But stroke by methodical stroke, something was taking its shape on my easel. I could not see my own work, but after two hours of toil, I began to feel it, radiating a strange heat. A terrible power to match the power that held me in its grip. But it was not complete. It was not the real likeness he wanted. I can still smell the stink of that room, Marshal. I've bathed, but I can still call up that death stink, the stench of piss and shit. Remember I said three days. But, like so many other things, I cannot say for sure that was the exact time I spent trapped in the cage of my own body. A slave to the red heat that boiled my blood and commanded my flesh. At first, my captor was gentle. Every so often I was allowed to cease my labor and rest my arms. I could feed myself, or rather be fed, and of course I was dispatched to the restroom to relieve myself. But it wasn't long before this small mercy waned. He was frustrated by my lack of progress. I worked into the night, my eyes dry and burning, my eyelids feeling like they were held up by tiny hooks. And when next I felt a stirring in my bowels... Well, I won't describe that. Not not in detail, not to you. But I can see on your face that you're imagining it. Maybe you can even feel the shame I felt. The disgust. No matter. Even this, I grew numb, too. Hours crawled by, or perhaps they flew. I limped along in a half-dream, my lips dry, my eyes half-closed. But my right hand that gripped the paintbrush held forever steady because he willed it. I don't know if he ever allowed me to sleep but I must have continued eating and drinking. The evidence is plain enough on the floor of my apartment and smeared on my old clothes, but I could no longer feel the needs that drove those things. Hunger, fatigue. I couldn't feel his moods swirling in me either. Even when twice his frustration overwhelmed him and he raised my fists to tear through the canvas, I myself felt nothing. Only some dim recognition that I'd raised my arms. I drifted. I ceased to exist. Maybe I had never existed at all. And then it was over. Or only beginning. My mind, it's... It's scrambling and re-scrambling trying to calm the waters. Like a hand going slack inside a glove, I felt the hold loosen. The scales fell away from my eyes. I was still in my apartment. I didn't know how much time had passed. I felt stifled, smothered, as though I was wrapped in loose gauze. I blinked in a strange half-light. Dawn? Dusk? I stood slowly trying to orient myself, 
shaking the last flecks of red from my vision. My body was stiff all over and I could not distinguish the pain of one component of my body from that of another. I was all over a rusty door hinge, stiff and crusted. The stink of excrement filled the air, my clothes cleaved to my skin. A vile sensation. I wept briefly and violently, then stopped as suddenly as I'd begun. The painting was gone. Yes, gone. The easel still stood on the table, and next to it lay my palette. The paints river-bottom dry in their wells, but that portrait, if it was a portrait at all, had vanished. I might as well come out and say it. That terrible masterwork I slaved over bled over for three days on end. I never saw the finished product. Even if I wanted to describe it, I could not. But I'm grateful, yes, grateful for that mercy. Maybe it was a masterpiece as I've described. I don't care. It's out there now in the world. I won't look for it. The reason why will be clear soon enough. I showered, naturally. It seemed to take forever to scrape the filth off myself. I got under the water in all my clothes, squeezing my eyes shut against the abominable sensation of my own leavings loosening and crumbling off me into the drain. And I stripped and scrubbed and scrubbed. The stench refused to leave my nostrils. God, I scrubbed myself raw. I'm red all over even now under these clothes. I stayed until the hot water ran out and a few minutes more after that, then climbed out and fished for a towel. I stood there, drying my face in front of the mirror for several moments. And when I looked up, I thought I would be too fatigued to scream. But no, the sound came rasping out of me like hot, musty air through old ducts. At first I could only groan, but then a torrent, a gusher, a geyser of a cry. I raised my hands to my cheeks, then quickly thrust them down to my sides again. I did not want to touch what I saw in the glass. Can you imagine peering at another human face as though you'd never seen one before? Seeing pink flesh and recoiling at how it felt, how it must feel when it wriggles and crawls under your touch. Studying the planes of a face as though they are the landscape of some hostile planet orbiting a faraway alien star. To look into another person's eyes and see nothing, no soul, no intellect, no light at all save for what reflects off the sclera. That's what leered back at me from my bathroom mirror, real and solid as anything. I braved a touch, I felt flesh under my fingers, 
Again, I felt the urge to scream. But I could not tear my eyes away because a horror of horrors, it was still my face. There was the monstrous tragedy of it. I could recognize every feature, every wrinkle, every twitch. But I couldn't look myself in the eye for more than an instant without feeling bile rise in my throat. I don't know how he stood it. Seeing us, all of us, just like that, every moment of every day, surrounded by us, alone in a world packed to bursting with twisted parodies of life, with such gormless, slack-faced monsters. I've got a beating heart still. I can feel for him, even after everything. I... I can imagine his disgust, and I can conjure his hatred, too. The hatred that must fester in his own heart. Hate for us, for humans, for the snuffed candles, the hollow trees that grew dead and swaying in his world. For flesh, for anything not him, him and his faceless bride. The brutal dichotomy of it, the cosmic solitude. And yes, I do mean all of us. I asked you to turn the mirror away, and now you know why. But perhaps you've noticed I won't need your eye, either. I'm sorry, but politeness doesn't matter anymore. I've had my steering moment, and whatever lever he threw inside of me can't be unthrown. I despair, Marshal. There is desperation clawing within me, verging on some brutal whirlwind frenzy. I had to leave my apartment, you see. To come here, I had to go out and walk among the other students. I dressed myself first, then fired off an email to my arts professor, and set about to the grisly business of disposing of my paints and brushes. I felt nothing as I did this, and I feel nothing now. I left and came here, to campus, it was only early evening, and there were still plenty of other boys and girls coming down the center walk. I must have been a spectacle, staggering crazily down the sidewalk beside them, every muscle rebelling. They stared, naturally, and I stared back. For the first time in my life, I could not stop staring. They all had the same face, Marshal. The blank face, the lightless face. My face. There's the real terror, there's the real truth. I had thought that surely the slack-faced horror in the mirror was only a personal affliction. But my encounter with the master of the hollow trees had scooped me out, burned me empty. But no. I could look through 
Each face I beheld in that teeming crowd, passing under the cold bright lamps on the center walk. If I stared long enough, I could peel back the layers of flesh with my eyes. Muscle, bone, brain, and at their center, nothing. They were all empty. Empty like me. Suddenly I was running. Even though I had no strength left in my body, I took off in a dead sprint. Their pale, slack faces whipping by like the taillights of cars, all staring, staring. I made it almost the whole way here. Only stopping just outside the double doors of the manor to catch my breath. God, my lungs burned. But worse was the horrible awareness that came with it. I was conscious of the construction of my body in a way that filled me up with revulsion. I could imagine the muscular action of my diaphragm, the cavity of my chest filling with air, the vascular pump of my heart, the squirt of blood through the tubes of my veins. I felt the urge, the overpowering thrust to destroy this body, to rid myself of the appendage, the parasite of my own flesh. My finger raked my face, stretched the skin nearly, drew blood. But the feeling passed as quickly as it had come. I was here, just at your doorstep. I was careful not to catch sight of myself in the double glass doors. But I knew instinctively that if I could only get inside, if I could see you, talk to you, I could face all the rest of it. But this was not to be. I had not realized I wasn't alone on the patio. There was another student, a girl, sitting on the bench with one leg crossed over the other and her hands stuffed in the pockets of an orange and black sweatshirt. I froze. And she blew a long stream of cold weather fog and half turned toward me, her face in shadow from the bushes at her back. I know you, don't I? There was no question in her thin voice. She knew who I was, just as I knew her. She leaned forward, her hair tumbling across her face as she made to stand. Her face swam into view under the street lamp. I don't need my finished portrait now. See, I've met my model, his muse, his bride is mate. I've seen the true likeness in the flesh, or something beyond flesh. I have looked it in the face, seen the eyes behind the eyes blinking in the cold lights of our world. The mirror was nothing. The students on the center walk were nothing. This, this was only madness. Screaming, bedlam veiled in a too thin human mass. Yet I wasn't afraid, Marshall. 
In fact, I felt all fear melt from me like snow sliding off a steep roof. She stood and spoke to me in a quiet voice that might have been pleasant if it hadn't come from that face. From those same lipless lips I had painted. And I felt something take hold of me. Not him. No, I never felt his white-hot grip again. This was a different power. Something newer, something sweeter. I embraced it eagerly. I clung to it like a drowning man clings to driftwood. I finally understood. I could look through her flesh as well and hear... Here was the real thing at last. Here was the flickering candle in the dark window. I can't find it in your face or even in my own eyes, but there it was, gleaming under this strange girl's skin. Gleaming and lively and true, truer than flesh, truer than anything. I don't need to tell you she was beautiful. Among the shambling, slack horrors, she was light. Light all the way down. She grinned almost shyly at me, kicking the back of one sneaker with the toe of the other. I liked your portrait. I liked it very much. I don't know how I'll ever be able to thank you, only... I blew through those double doors into your building like hell itself was on my scent. Maybe you heard me. You certainly would have as I came up the stairs. You'll remember how I pounded your door, how I begged to be let inside, crying out in the hall. How I collapsed here on this couch, unable to breathe or speak or look you in the face. But I was not afraid for my life. I, I wasn't then, and I'm not now. I didn't need your protection or anyone else's. All I need is the courage to finish what I started. He said I needed to see her the way he saw her. Now I do. And I cannot refuse her. I was wondering if I could ask you for one more favor. I was wondering, would you be willing to paint one of him as well? So, thanks for the alcohol. It steadied me enough. No, don't get up. I can find the door. Fine. I've got work to do, and I know from experience my commissioners reward a certain efficiency. Oh, my paints. Yes, all destroyed, like I told you. And my promise to never hold a brush again stands. But there are other ways to render a real likeness, Marshal. Better ways, and better canvases on which to render them. You'll see, soon enough. You won't see me, 
of course, but don't be afraid. See, I'm not frightened at all. Yeah, the river's changed, but I can ford the pass. I've had my steering moment. I saw the fork coming, and I took it. And I can see the other path, Marshal. I can see you on the shore, beckoning, beckoning. Oh yes, I can see you. But I am not jumping back. Nightmares may be over, but the darkness will linger on, so long as you reside in the No Sleep Zone. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mikulski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for joining us in the No Sleep Zone and for being a supportive Season Pass member. This program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media, Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc. <laughs>